Hi, I'm Alana Simons, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist, and I'm turning and turning and turning again. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. How are your holidays? Kind of stressful, but pretty good. You know, it's hard when you're a clergy or you're a clergy student because, you know, you want to have a meaningful, prayerful experience, but at the same time, like you are working, like that is your job. And it's hard. It's hard work to, you know, lead a community in such an intense moment of prayer and introspection. You know, I mean, for me, I don't know if you know this, I've been learning, learning and learning this Torah portion that I just had never learned before, which was Vizot Habracha. I think that you did a segment about it like a week ago. I did. It is my favorite, Vizot Habracha. I love that Torah portion. Uh, I know it ends everything. But now, you know, I found myself during this holiday break doing a lot of writing. And so it seems like with this new Torah portion cycle, and by the way, like, Hugs and right? Like we're getting to dance with some Torah today. It just feels like there has to be some sort of connection between writing and Torah, right? Because it is called Hakatub, like the written Torah. Well, you know, I'm not sure if you remember this, but you and I are in a class this semester on So Fruit, on the real art of writing a Torah scroll and, you know, other important sacred objects. Wait, aren't we supposed to be in that class right now? Oh, crap. Do you think that we might be able to call our teacher in? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, I think that way we'll get credit for going to class today, right? And we've got a podcast episode. Oh, amazing. This is great. Way to kick off season three. Let's go. Let's go. expecting to get two episodes in one week, but that's just the tape of givers that we are because we wanted to be able to celebrate not only an incredible holiday, but also the fact that we are starting our third season, if you can believe it, which is a little insane. With Bereshit this year, we are starting our third season with this episode of Bereshit, which just happens to be one of my favorites because it was also, you guessed it, my bat mitzvah portion. Don't worry, Gabe's is going to come up much later in the year, but we'll get there another time. But today, I am super excited because we're going to be talking a little bit about how the story of Bereshit actually comes to exist. That means how we start our Torah stories and how we end them and how it really helps to keep looking within it to see, I don't know, the special sauce that helps make the stories come to life for us when we stand before our Torahs and get to read our own stories. I can't do that by myself. And hey, you wouldn't want to listen to me the entire time anyway. So I'm really super excited to be able to welcome not only my teacher, but everyone's teacher on this call, our favorite Sofrut instructor, Liana Jelen-Topnak. Liana Jelen-Topnak is a Soferit, a Hebrew scribe living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in New York. She learned scribal arts while studying at the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem and has continued learning on her own and in community with a guild of fellow progressive scribes known as Stom Scribes, which is really cool. This semester, Liana is dipping her quill, much to our benefit, into the inkwell of teaching in the form of an intro to scribal arts class at HUC, which I'm really stoked to say Gabe is taking and I am taking 
And our Q&A guest, Alana Simons, is taking. So, Liana and Alana, welcome to Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist. We're so excited to kick off Season 3 with the both of you. Thank you so much. And of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Drinking and Drashing, Tour of the Twist, or a true kickoff if I didn't have my partner in podcasting, the one, the only, cantorial student, Gabe Snyder. What's going on, Gabe? Oh, it's all good. I'm super excited for season three. Right? But Gabe, are we missing someone today? I mean, Idan's not here. Oh, can it be a true kickoff without Idan? Maybe. I don't know. Idan will have to weigh in later. We'll see if he'll patch himself in here. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. It'll be an adventure. But don't worry, we'll get something from Edan for our next episode. We're pretty sure. Pretty sure. Regardless, we've got a show to put on, Gabe, and we should get started, don't you think? Let's go. Let's go. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. You know, I feel like we just finished some holidays. Yeah, there were a whole bunch of them. Like, we had this first holiday. I'm pretty sure my birthday was on it. You know, I I don't remember that New Year thing. What was that called? Oh, Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, Rosh Hashanah. So, like, that's when we read this first portion, right? No, it's a little confusing because Rosh Hashanah is actually the new year, but then the Torah cycle starts a couple weeks later on Simchat Torah. Oh, wait, is that holiday coming up? Well... Yes, but also, when is this episode being released? I think the day of. Oh, that's exciting. Happy Simchat Torah, everybody. Oh my gosh, Hag Simchat Torah Sameach. So everyone should enjoy like kind of a new and exciting holiday, which is going to be super fun. But what does that have to do with starting the Torah over? Right. So as you might have heard in the episode that was released earlier this week, we just finished the Torah with Vizot HaBracha. And, you know, Vizot HaBracha Torah, that's the Torah, and then we roll back, start all over at the beginning. Oh my gosh, so that's where we are now? We're right there. We're in the beginning, and there's not a lot going on. Actually, everything is going on. It's chaos and dark, and God is gliding over the water, and God says, let there be light, and there was light. God was like, hey, that's pretty good. I'll make some more stuff. Let's call that the first day. The next day, let's call it day two, God divides the water of the earth from the water of the sky. The sky is made of water. Yup, that's day two. Day three, land. The land was good, but it needed some decoration. So God told the earth to produce plants and stuff, which was also nice. Lights in the sky, day four, the sun and moon. But wait, what was light from day one? Don't worry about it. Day five, fish and birds and sea monsters. Wait, what? Day six, big land animals and bugs. Cool. But God wasn't done. God says to someone, maybe, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the other animals. And then God did, creating man and woman in the image of God. God blessed them and gave us the first commandment in the entire Torah, be fruitful and multiply. God looked around and was pleased with creation. Good job, God. Day seven, rest. Creating the universe is a lot of work. So a nap is in order, a sacred nap, a holy day of rest. And that's how the world was created. Just kidding. There's another version of the creation story. Wait, what? Okay, I guess. Here we go. So there was heaven and earth, but nothing else. No plants or animals or rain, but water emerges from the earth. Then God forms man, the man, Adam, from the dust of the soil and breathed life into his nostrils. To the east, God planted a garden and put the man there. In the garden, God grew nice things and good fruit. And in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of all knowledge. There was also a river that watered the garden and then divided into four branches. So the man is in the garden. What does he do? Gardens. 
God tells the man he can eat from any tree except the special tree of knowledge. Don't eat that. The punishment, death. But there was a problem. The first problem in the Torah, it is not good for man to be alone. So God makes some animals and has the man name them. God named the animals, but none of them were a suitable mate for the man. So God put the man to sleep and took a chunk of his side, maybe his rib, and formed it into a woman. The man was very pleased with this new creation, so there they were, naked and happy. But then there was a snake, and as we know, snakes are quite cunning. The snake spoke to the woman, because that was a thing snakes could do back then, and convinced her to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge. She ate some and gave some to the man, and their eyes were opened, and well, there they were, naked and now not so happy. So they made themselves some clothes from fig leaves. Suddenly they heard God taking a walk in the garden, which apparently was a thing God did. God called out to the man, where are you? And the man said, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God replied, hold up. How did you know that you were naked? Who told you that? Did you do the one thing I explicitly told you not to do? So God got mad at the humans and also at the snake. The snake was cursed to crawl on his belly, which I guess he didn't do before, and made snakes and humans mortal enemies. God punished the woman with pain in childbirth and subservience to the man. God punished the man with a different kind of hard labor, forcing him to work the land for his food. So what's the woman's name? Kava, but let's just call her Eve, because sure. God made clothes for the humans and kicked them out from the garden, fearing they would also eat from the tree of life and become immortal. God guarded the garden with cherubim and a spinning sword of fire. Cool, take that, Johnny Cash. Adam and Eve have a son named Cain and then another son named Abel. Abel was a shepherd while Cain worked the land. On one occasion, Cain brought some of his harvest as a sacrifice to God. Abel followed suit with an offering of lambs. God liked Abel's offering but didn't so much care for Cain's. Cain was not pleased, to say the least. Cain thought about his brother Abel and then some other stuff happened, probably. We don't know because there's literally a break in the text. But then Cain killed Abel in a field. God asked Cain, hey, where's your brother? And he responded, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? That's a pretty sassy way to talk to God. And also the whole fratricide thing. So God curses Cain to walk the earth without the means to grow food. Cain was dismayed, saying his punishment was too great to bear and that surely someone would kill him too. But God gives Cain a mark of protection, keeping him eternally safe from future killers. Cain had a son named Enoch, who begat Irad, who begat Mechiael, who begat Metushael, who begat Lameth. There were also some women born, which will probably be important to populate the earth. Come to think of it, who did Cain have kids with? Try not to think about it too much. There were a bunch more names, but this rundown is already really long, so moving on. Adam and Eve have another kid named Seth, and Seth had a son named Enosh. All of the other people live a really long time, Methuselah winning the Longest Life Award at 969 years. Hey, who's that? It's Noah. He's a good person with a few sons. There's a lot going on in the earth with Nephilim and wickedness among the people, and God was not thrilled with the state of creation. So God decides to wipe out all the people and also the animals. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Eternal. So clearly everything is going to work out fine, right? And that's Parashat Bereshit. Wow. Yasher Koach. Thank you. I loved all the don't worry about it. That was my favorite. I mean, there's a lot going on. I don't know. I feel like Rashi would be proud. I also think we should say, good job, God, more. Yeah, good going, God. Yeah. <laughs> Until we get to all the destruction and stuff. Yeah, that's less good going, God. Yeah. yeah. That's a little more eat a Snickers, God. Ooh, yeah. This episode was not sponsored by Snickers, but it could be. Leanna, we were thrilled when you said that you were able to help us kick off this new season, especially because you are literally teaching us how to write the stories. 
And I have always loved the written word. Reading is one of my favorite things. Gabe has a joke that rabbis don't read. And I'm an exception because I'm a rabbinical student. So we'll find out how that works out once I'm ordained. But for right now, I love, love, love to read. But I don't always pronounce the words correctly. And sometimes I'm not always sure that I know what they mean. And so I may have asked this once or twice before, but sometimes I've heard this word so fruit or saw fruit, or sometimes I thought maybe sea fruit. What's the word and what does it mean, this thing that we're learning to do in your class? Okay, so the word in Hebrew, if you are a Hebrew speaker and you live in Israel, you'll probably say safrut, but a lot of people out there might say safrus or safrus or usually not safrut, but you could say safrut. Seafruit is a totally different word, but any of the aforementioned versions are basically acceptable. That's a really good answer that isn't a clear answer. <laughs> I'm probably going to say saffros. And what does it mean for you? Saffros is the ancient calligraphy technique that has been used for generations to write our holiest texts, whether it's a Torah scroll or tefillin or mezuzah that you'd see on the wall. All of these projects require a certain type of calligraphy with certain materials. And so really the full name of this discipline is Safrut Stam. And Stam, Samach Taf Mem, is an acronym, which really stands for Safer Torah, which is a Torah scroll, Tefillin, and mezuzah. But those three projects are not the only things that you can use this calligraphic style for. Also, if you ever go to synagogue and hear the Book of Esther read, or maybe Root or the Song of Songs, these will also be written on a scroll in a similar way. I also write marriage licenses, Jewish marriage licenses called Ketubot in this style. It doesn't have to be written in this style, but I can also create you know, art pieces with this type of calligraphy. But the point is, we are using this ancient form of calligraphy in all kinds of exciting ways. Amazing. It seems really important that, you know, Bereshi, this particular parsha, actually kicks off our Torah and our Tanakh, like, you know, like our written understanding of our own tradition. And so I'm curious, what got you kicked off in this particular tradition of writing? What got you excited about doing this? And why do you continue to do it now? So I had been in Jerusalem at the Pardes Institute, which is this amazing place. If you haven't heard of it, it's basically a yeshiva that is not denominationally affiliated. And their whole mission is no matter what kind of Jew you are, no matter what kind of Jew you think you are, everyone should have access to Torah learning in the primary texts in their untranslated form so that everyone, regardless of how you understand those texts, can make you know, informed decisions and can relate directly to those texts. But they're by mission, they are non-coercive. So they're not trying to like turn you into an Orthodox Jew. They're just trying to give you exposure to whatever Jewish resources are meaningful to you. So while I was there, I was spending a year there from 2015 to 2016, they offered, and they still offer, an introduction to scribal arts class as an elective in the evenings. And I thought, oh my God, this is perfect for me. Why? I am very much a tactile kinetic type of learner. Um, I didn't mention this in the bio, but in the rest of in my day job, when I'm not doing scribal work, I am a sign language interpreter. And I think that also fits very much with being a tactile kinetic. I talk with my hands. If you were in the Zoom with us right now, you would see that even as I'm saying I talk with my hands, I'm gesticulating wildly. And I'm also very crafty. I don't consider myself very artsy, but 
I do consider myself crafty. I like to make things. And so the idea of an opportunity to engage with Torah, engage with my tradition in a way that was embodied, in a way that was kinetic, in a way that was tactile, really spoke to me and really got me excited. So took that first semester, really fell in love with it, was very bad at it at first, but gradually got less bad at it. (laughs) And usually the second semester, the teacher starts the class again to a new group of students, again, a level one class, but there was at least three of us who really were motivated to continue our learning. And we convinced the institution and the teacher to teach us a level two class. And that's where we got to transition from just learning how to form the letters into more advanced skills like spacing and erasing and quill repair, etc. And then beyond that, my learning was more independent, right? So learning by doing. I started working on a big project that I eventually, eventually, after a long, long time, was able to finish. And through the doing of that project and other projects as well, I gradually built my skill and was able to encounter lots of problems that I had to learn how to solve. And that's that's really where I think learning happens is in the doing. I am curious about this episode in particular. We're on kind of a really meta level because we usually bring in people whose area of expertise or whose background kind of has to do with the content of what's going on in the Torah narrative or in the like Torah story or Torah words, like in terms of laws and stuff. And while you are creating something, it seems like this is a more meta thing where we're starting off the Torah and we're talking to somebody who, you know, really has an intimate familiarity with the, how a Torah starts with, you know, each of those individual letters. So I, I am curious if you could kind of talk about how you think your work really kind of ties into not just, you know, the meta level, but really how you connect with this Torah story. I love that question. And I love to talk about this because the very first word of the Torah is what, Gabe? Tell me. Bereshit. Bereshit. And what's the first letter of Bereshit? Bet. And isn't it weird that the Torah doesn't start with Aleph, which is the first letter of the Aleph That is weird. There's so many things that that bet could be trying to teach us. So, you know, we could really go in a lot of different directions with this. But what I like to talk about and one of the reasons that I like to start teaching our class with the letter bet, that was the very first letter that we learned, is if we think about the value numerologically of bet, if we think about gematria, it is two. The whole Torah is based on the idea that Torah and Judaism is not a solo sport. That no matter what we do when we are engaging with Torah, it is ultimately at its core about interaction. Even if I were to stand in front of a Torah scroll and open it up and nobody is around me, I am still in relationship with a person who physically, with their hands, wrote that Torah scroll. And I think that's something that's really special that we have in at the very beginning, the very first letter of this Parsha of the Torah at large is that relationship with one another, that relationship with tradition, that relationship with generations of people who have toiled with these words. I think that's really the connection that I want to make, that we're not meant to do this all by ourselves later in the Parsha when God says that it's not good for a person to be by themselves. It reiterates, it underscores that idea. 
when we are learning Torah, the traditional way that we kind of wrestle with things in Chavruta, in pairs. That's the way that Torah is meant to be. That's the way that Judaism is meant to be. So I think the same is true for scribal arts as well. It's really difficult to just open a book and learn how to be a scribe. It is possible. I know people who have done it, but really the way that you can get good at it is by dialoguing with people, by learning from a teacher and by passing that tradition down in person through interaction. I think that that is a really interesting and difficult situation that we find that people aren't meant to be alone. And that Bereshi is really gender-based in a fascinating way, really. It sets up kind of some of our gender roles, including, by the way, this idea that God created Otam, that God created them in God's image. You know, but I think one of the things that is really interesting here is that from beginning to end, different genders have different expectations, even from presence to punishments, I would say, that women are expected to go into severe childbirth and painful childbirth, and men are expected to labor and toil with like a lot of hardship. But I think that some of those gender stereotypes just don't hit right anymore, especially not for the rabbinate that I'm trying to go into. And I think not for the cancerate that Gabe's trying to go into. And and I, I like to say not for the rabbinate that Alana is going into as well. She's nodding. So I feel like, good, I've got the support. And so, you know, you are doing a job that many might say, what rights do you have as a non-cis male to work in this field? How does that sit with you? And, you know, I hear there might be another project that you're also working with that might help spread some of those blessings without having all of those separations. Amanda, I love that question. I think it is so complicated and so juicy in a way that I really, really love to talk about. So I think I want to start by talking about my own journey in my relationship with Sefrut. I was raised kind of traditional back when that was a denomination slash modern Orthodox. And my relationship with Jewish law did have a lot of genderedness inherent in it, even though I didn't like it, I felt like it was kind of my burden to wrestle with and to deal with. And so when I learned Sefrut originally, and I learned that the classic interpretation of Jewish law says that women are not eligible to write the three projects that I mentioned earlier, Sefer Torah, Tefillin, and Mezuzah, which I could get into later if you're interested, but is not really relevant to this question. When I learned that, I thought to myself, well, that's a big bummer, but it is what it is, and I need to accept that. That is the mainstream approach. If you ask like a non-creative Orthodox person about the understanding of the halacha, that will be the answer. And so for a long time, I was learning Sefrut for like a number of years. I was learning Sefrut, I was engaged with Sefrut, and I was just restricting myself to projects that were beyond those three core projects. So, and that includes repair. So meaning like if I'm not eligible to write a Torah, that means I'm also not eligible to like fix a letter in a Torah to make it kosher again. So instead, I wrote a Megillah, the book of Esther. I wrote the book of Ruth. I was writing Kitsubot those marriage licenses that I mentioned, and I was doing artistic related projects. And I did feel limited. It was really sad for me that even though this was an area of Judaism, a pathway into my tradition that really animated me and was really meaningful to me, even though that was true, I was limited by that very pathway into my tradition. And that was really hard. That was something that I struggled with. But kind of I thought about it at that time as, well, 
you know, even if I felt limited by my like inability to eat a cheeseburger, does that mean that I should just like reinterpret like Jewish loss that I can eat a cheeseburger? Maybe a reform rabbi would say something different, but I don't know. But my Orthodox brain couldn't really justify that. Couldn't really justify any kind of shift. It was just like, this is hard, but this is your burden to bear because that's just what Jewish law is. And this is what God wants from you. And this is just how it is. But there came a time when I kind of just stopped believing that. Like it happened at some point during the pandemic. And I think it has to do with the fact that I'm gay and that I now have a baby. And when I was thinking about like, what is the landscape of the world that I want for my child? Like, do I want a world? Do I think that it is true that in this home, nobody is obligated to put on tefillin? That in this home, like my child is never going to have the experience of going under a talus, like when during the priestly blessing in synagogue, because classically women don't do that. That's not really the world that I want for my child. And it's not really the world that feels like truth to me. And so I kind of went through this existential like crisis about it. And, you know, long story short, I shifted. And I now believe that regardless of your gender, you have access to the fullness of halakha, of Jewish law. I do understand that that's not true for everyone. And so it's very much like a you do you type of situation. But for me, reorienting that understanding reoriented my understanding of my own eligibility to participate in these projects. Because if I am obligated in all three of those, tefillin, mezuzah, and sefer Torah, I am considered to be in the category of people who are eligible to write those three projects. So that's a very distilled version of how I shifted and you know what gives me the audacity to participate in this work. Bottom line, I would not write any of those three projects for a community that does not believe that I am eligible. It's just not appropriate. So I would write for a community that does hold that I'm eligible and that's fine. There's plenty of a market for that. I'm not like, I don't need to, I don't need to convince anyone. Whatever works for you is what works for you. And that's fine. Now, in terms of the genderedness of Brashit, this is, um, there's this Hebrew phrase, I'll regal on one foot. Like, you know, my off the cuff answer without having dug too deep into the texts and maybe Gabe and Amanda and Alana, you can find this as a, a jumping off point for future sermons in your work. I think the idea that man and woman were created as one in the first telling of the creation story really can suggest to us the idea that all humans are created with masculinity and femininity within us in all kinds of different manifestations. And if we orient our understanding of the genderedness in Brashit, rather than being like men are masculine, period, women are feminine, period, full stop, that's the end. Instead, if we think about it as there are these categories of femininity and masculinity within the world, and these will manifest in different ways within different people, if we think about it that way, then it ceases to feel as oppressive and as binary. And it starts to feel a little bit more like a smorgasbord of gender for us to experience. Now, how do you deal with all of the intricacies of that Parsha? I'll leave that up to the the rabbis and the cantors in the room and they can uh, deal with, you know, ironing out the kinks and how that really works. But that's my resolution of the genderedness in Breshit. And then, you know, your question about what am I doing to kind of open this work up to people of all genders? Or as you mentioned, I am a cis woman who is doing this work. That's one way that I do it. 
I am a cis woman who is teaching people of all genders to do this work. That's another way that I'm opening things up. And a third way is my involvement with this project called the Women's Tefillin Gemach. A gemach is basically like, if you've ever heard of a Buy Nothing group on Facebook, it's sort of like the old school pre-Facebook version of that. It's sort of like either a lending library or a program to help connect people with cheap resources that they're looking for. In this case, let's say you have a grandparent who after 120 years passes away and has old tefillin, family doesn't know what to do with them. Please send them to the Women's Tefillin Gemach if you're comfortable with people who aren't men wearing tefillin. We will check them, we will rehab them, and we will connect them with someone who might have a hard time because of their gender getting connected with tefillin. And that's what we do. And I will also, if you have a pair of tefillin and you want them repaired and checked by someone, and not in that order, checked and then repaired, by someone who is not a cis Haredi man with a long beard. Not that there's anything wrong with those people, but I'm saying some people might want someone who aligns with their relationship with Judaism a little bit more. I'm available to do that as well. I would also argue that long beards are uh, not reserved for Haredi spaces, but that's a separate issue. Fair enough. Yes. Let's not discriminate against the beards. I want to get back to Torah for a minute. I just, I have this question about the Torah portion that I'm so curious about. We spend a lot of time, like people who talk about this Torah portion, spend a lot of time talking about the tree of good and evil. And there's also another tree, which doesn't get talked about as much. Torah says in Genesis chapter two, verse nine, Eitz hachayim betoch hagan ve'etz hada'at tov vara. So like in addition to Eitz da'at tov vara, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there's also this Eitz hachayim. And like I heard that and my ears just perked up because Eitz hachayim to me means the Torah. I'm curious, is that where we get that? Is that like a connection? Was the Torah in the garden? Yeah, what's going on there? Yeah, I've I never thought about that question before. I think referring to Torah as etz hada'at or etz hachayim, I think it's a metaphor. I don't think it's suggesting that there was a Torah scroll in the Garden of Eden. I think it's just if we think of these trees as like being the ultimate goodness and being the ultimate truth with a capital T, then like, you know, that's where we get the the comparison to Torah. Okay, so speaking of ultimate truth, capital T, we have a really important question to ask you before we turn the episode over to Ilana. And that is, we want to hear your capital T truth in like a sentence. We want to hear... If you had one thing, one message, one like underlined whatever that you wanted to leave listeners with before they finish this episode, if you had one call to action, one, you know, letter of wisdom, what would that be? Your hakatuv as it was. Oh, nice. Can it be two, please? Absolutely. Okay. The first one is you are not a bad Jew because you don't do Fill in the blank however you want. I hear this all the time. Oh, I'm a bad Jew because I don't keep Shabbos. Oh, I'm a bad Jew because I didn't use kosher chicken in my chicken. You're not a bad Jew. (laughs) You do Jew however you want to do Jew. And that's being a Jew. And that's cool. And that's great. And being a Jew in whatever way that you're doing Jew does not make you ineligible to access Torah however you want to access Torah, whether that means Torah learning, whether that means learning how to write these letters, you are good enough exactly as you are. So that's the first thing that I want to say. 
shifting gears completely in a different direction for the second one, as it relates to STOM. So Safra's products, mezuzahs, Atora, a pair of tefillin. I get a lot of time people complaining about the price of these things. I want to encourage you, if you or your community is in the market to purchase these products, I want you to stop for a minute and think about what your values are. What do I want out of my most holy, sacred texts? What are the values? Do I want it to be kosher? Probably. Do I want it to be written by someone whose values are aligned with me? Maybe. Do I want the person who wrote these objects to be paid a fair living wage so that they can feed their families and pay their rent? Probably. And if those things are true... How do I, first of all, prioritize those things? And how do I make sure that it is a standard practice and it is a standard value for me and my family if I'm purchasing something for my own family, for me and my community, if it's for my community, to be thinking about these values when I'm making these purchases rather than bargain hunting? I think we need to reorient ourselves. I think that's like the theme of the day is reorientation of the self reorient our expectations of how cheap these products should be and kind of weigh that with respect for the person who is writing these products and making sure that they are able to, you know, live the values that we care very much about for ourselves. We invest a lot of money into college education for our children. And that's because education is central to a lot of our lives. And if we think that Torah is additionally, equally, and maybe even on a greater level central to our lives, then maybe we should be investing, putting our money where our mouths are in that way too, and budgeting appropriately for that. You know, in this portion, often we hear that God saw it was really good. We encourage everybody to really hear Liana and this idea that this work is also really good and really holy and to keep your eyes out for the light and the creation that goes into it to make sure that, you know, we want to say it's very good. It's good. We can see it. We value it. And we agree and we support you. One of the benefits to being at HUC is that not only do we get to learn from incredible people in the fields, but we actually get to learn with extraordinary people who are going to be our colleagues one day. And Gabe and I are really excited to happen to kick off this particular season with somebody who is a new friend of mine, but an old friend of Gabe's, which is very, very cool. And we would like to say a new student at the New York campus. However, Alana Simons, our Q&A guest today, is a fourth-year rabbinical student at HUC. Alana grew up outside of Pittsburgh, where she was very active in URJ youth programming. And in 2019, she received her BA from New York University in philosophy. While at HUC, she has served pulpits in Ohio, New York, Michigan, and Missouri. And she knew this was coming, Wyoming, where she happened to just forget to listen to the podcast. So we're still missing Wyoming, but we forgive her and love her and are excited to literally pass her the mic because she happens to be sitting in the same room with us. So Lana, the show is yours. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I'll say that I'm so glad to be in class with both of you and to be learning from and with Liana this year, who I have to say is one of the coolest people I've ever met. So it's really an honor to be in this setting with her as well. So my first question, I'll start with a softball, is what is your favorite text or document to scribe? I have to say, I really love doing ketubas for gay couples. That is my favorite. 
no two gay ketubas have the same text because these things don't exist in our tradition. So queer couples are coming to me. Some of them have texts that they've composed that are creative. And sometimes they need a little help figuring out what they want their document to say. And I can help them figure that out as well. But it always brings me great joy to be involved in that. Beautiful. So I know that some scribes will start their process by blotting out the name of Amalek on the scroll, the enemy of the Jews. We don't want him anywhere near the text. And I'm curious how you begin your process. How do you warm up before writing a text? If I were doing what I was supposed to be doing, I usually just start off with some bets and some rashes and some lamed so that I get some, make sure my quill is working on some sharp cornered letters, make sure my quill is working, my ink is working for some rounded letters. And then I just do some lamed because they're my favorite letters. That's if I'm doing, you know, best practices scenario. Really, truthfully, most of the time I just sit down and start writing. And if it's terrible, then I like fix my quill and keep writing and then just like fix the letter later because I'm impulsive and I can't really be slowed down by warming up. But (laughs) that's not really, that's like a do what I say, not as I do kind of experience. So Amanda touched a little bit on the gendered nature, especially of this week's Parsha. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about being a female identifying person in the male dominant field of Sufruth. Yeah, it's definitely challenging. It's less challenging now that I've kind of made that cognitive shift that I mentioned earlier. It used to be very painful for me. It used to feel very limiting for me, but that's not really the case anymore. There are enough communities who are looking for people of all genders to do this work that if I'm talking to someone who doesn't believe that I'm eligible, I'm not interested in trying to convince them. That's fine for them. There's plenty of egalitarian communities who are looking for me to do this work that I feel validated by them, and that's fine. I'm kind of at peace with the fact not everyone is egalitarian. So in our class, we've talked a little bit about the relationship between sofrus and animals with the skins that we use, as well as the quills that we use, and things like that. And I wonder in this world where we're becoming a little more aware of product supply chain and where our things come from, how you conceive of the relationship between sofrus and animals. Oof! That's really a tough one. Okay, again, my spontaneous, not thought out answer would be, ideally, if we are doing the work as we should be doing it, then we are elevating animals to make sure that their lives were not a waste. And so the products that we use for sufferus, whether it is feathers or whether it is skins, frequently are products that might have been thrown out otherwise. And it does bring me, this is not something that I've really thought about or wrestled with really before, but if I think about it in that way, it feels like I'm elevating something that would have not been holy to become holy. And that kind of really brings me joy in that way. I'm thinking of Gabe's former teacher, or maybe her still teacher, Rabbi Linda Motzkin, who creates, she is working on creating a Torah and creates parchment out of skins that literally were rescued from the garbage of the hunters in her neighborhood. And while not all Torahs are made out of such rescue skins, my understanding and haven't independently verified this myself is that a lot of the skins that we use are kind of byproducts of the slaughter industry. And they're not coming from like leather houses where they're like slaughtered for their skins, but these skins, I think, and maybe we can look into this before it makes it into the final podcast are like would have been thrown away otherwise. There are so many more questions I would want to ask you, and I'll 
ask just one more for now, which is you are highly trained as a scribe and work in fields where people should be highly trained and have a high skill level. And I wonder if you think that SOFRU should be limited just to people with those trainings or if it should be more accessible. And if so, how can we make SOFRUs more accessible? Thank you very much for saying that I'm very highly trained. I literally, the extent of my formal training is two semesters of a once a week class. And beyond that, it was really just self-motivated. I think that we need to be offering more intro level classes to people of all genders and all religious levels. I think that is the primary way to make this work more accessible. Not everyone who takes an introductory level class is going to be skilled enough or motivated enough or interested enough to pursue it to the point where they're qualified to do this work, whether it's professionally or for their own communities, et cetera. I think it is important to be qualified if you're going to do this work. I don't think it is appropriate for any person who's taken, you know, a, like a one day workshop to go home and repair their community's Torah. I think you do need to know the difference between kosher work and non-kosher work. But in terms of on a larger scale, making this work more accessible, I think we need to, and I have heard some rumblings about this being in the process. Currently, there's no certification outside of the Orthodox world to formally certify, yes, you are qualified. I do not have that certification because I'm not an Orthodox man who has gone through one of those courses. But it would be really great if there were certifications both for checking, meaning looking at something and knowing whether or not it is kosher. That is one certification. And a separate certification for eligibility to write. I think if those certifications were available to a more egalitarian population, then I think we would be well on our way to formalized accessibility of this work. But I do think that there should be some minimal bar of entry of qualification in order to do this work like for real, like for a community, for things that are going out into circulation. Well, thank you so much for answering my hard-hidden questions. And as I said, it's been such a pleasure to learn from you. And I hope to ask you many more questions in the future. I hope so too. You know, Gabe, we've been talking a lot about things that seem forbidden, you know, that we've been trying to push past this idea of what might not be allowed for some people to say, like, actually, it could be accessible to everybody. But that's a little bit weird in this portion, because it does seem like there are some things that are meant to be off limits or some things that you could say would be, I don't know, what's that catchphrase again? What's that word? Forbidden fruit? No way. You didn't make a drink with that, did you? Oh, I did. This week on Midrashic Mixology, we are proud to present the Forbidden Fruit Punch. What could the forbidden fruit be? Well, the Greeks thought it was an apple, because apple sounds like knowledge in the Septuagint, so that's a possibility. Let's cut up an apple into thin wedges and throw that into a pitcher. Another possibility? Figs! After all, we know figs were there because they covered their nakedness with figs leaves. So let's take seven of those, one for each day of the week, cut those into quarters, and throw them into the pitcher too. Hey, isn't the pomegranate important? Yes, it is. Is that a possible forbidden fruit? Sure. Let's put a cup of pomegranate seeds and two cups of pomegranate juice into the pitcher. Lastly, throw in some ice, the juice of one lemon, and a bottle of sparkling apple cider. Because, you know, we gotta celebrate. Alternatively, a bottle of Prosecco. You do you. Serve cold to all your friends and to your brother, who you should definitely remember to not kill. 
Lechaim. Lechaim, yum. Lechaim. Oh, I love that. I wish I could have that right here. Also, I was surprised that you weren't making it in front of me. I definitely thought I was going to see you mix up a drink. Oh, I mean, being at school right now, I think it would be not difficult, maybe slightly inappropriate, at least awkward for me to like, just have a bottle of Prosecco and be pouring it into a pitcher. And hey, there was a non-alcoholic option. There was. We could do that. Maybe I'll make it for class next week. Oh, I would love that. But you need to make sure you drink far away from your parchment so you don't ruin it. Ooh, good point. Good point. But maybe with straws, sippy cups. Ooh, love it. Yes, let's get skippy cups. I do feel like they should be serpentine curly straws. Oh, wow. We are coming up with all sorts of fun things here. Incredible. Amazing. I will say it does sound like the beginning of a really, really good series of drink recipes. For those that are looking for the written version of those drink recipes, we know that sometimes we get a little behind, but you can find a lot of them, including hopefully this one soon at www.drinkinganddrushing.com. Yeah, right on Well, I know that we just had all of these delicious fruits in one recipe. That sounds really sweet and incredible. It's a little bittersweet, I would say, that we've hit our last section of the show. So we are at thank yous and our closing cues. And so our last question for today to, well, not our last question, but our big one for all of us to answer, for Liana and Alana and Gabe and me in Barashi, we're beginning to write and read our own stories again. And You know, there's this line that says, turn it, turn it, turn it again, turn the Torah, because everything is within it. And so that's at least according to Gabe's favorite rabbinic sage, Ben Bagdag. The question is, what is one thing that you wish people would return to again and again in order to possibly find some new meaning? Liana, we'll start with you. I would say don't fear the suck. Do not fear sucking when you are starting something new or when you encounter something that is unfamiliar. Think this is true for everyone, but maybe even especially for people who are embarking on communal work, where they will be in this position of power and in this position where everyone's expecting you to be the expert all the time. I think it is a good look for everyone to be able to say, I don't understand that thing that you just said. Can you teach me about it? And also when we are starting work, like when we are starting to write, very often your letters will not come out the way that you want them to but push through. Don't be afraid of sucking when you are learning a new skill because lo shan lomed. People who are overly concerned with looking foolish will not learn. So embrace looking foolish and go for it. I will say that this is something I do every single week in surfer class. And every now and then, Leanna will be walking by when I have a letter that I'm like very excited about and I'll have a physical reaction. Leanna goes, do we have something to celebrate? And I'm always like, yay. And so it takes me longer than it takes some other people that are on this podcast, but I'm really excited about the progress, not the perfection. Alana, what are you hoping that people might be able to return to again and again in order to find a new meaning as we start this new season and this new Torah reading book? I would say that we should turn and turn again our rituals and routines, that sometimes we find things that we're doing every day or every week or every year aren't working for us anymore, or the meaning has changed. And I think we should give ourselves the freedom and the permission to turn those over and find new meaning and new expectations in them and make sure that our rituals and routines are working for us at all times. 
confusing. I always love the idea that in Hebrew, the word for like exercise, like this idea of targil also goes with regil, which mm. is to become regular, to make like daily. And so I think like it's an exercise in kind of testing ourselves of what's working for us, what's not, and what's happening just because, you know, somebody said it should a long time ago. So I love the idea of revisiting how it is we do something, including like what we do. Gabe, my favorite daily partner. What are you thinking that we could return to again and again in order to hopefully find some new meaning? I think for me, there are a lot of times when there's something I don't like or there's something that makes me anxious and that makes me avoid it. You know what I mean? Like I, during college, got into a really bad car accident and then I was anxious about driving for like a really long time and I avoided it. And then the more I drove, the easier it got. And now I'm back to like enjoying driving, which is a fun thing. That's a really simple example. And like, no, I'm never going to try like immersion therapy with spiders because I'm afraid of spiders and that's just not going to happen. But if there's something that's like anxiety provoking, or if there's something, if there's a food that you don't like, yeah, keep trying it because eventually it'll come back. Alana's shaking her head. So I'm going to guess there's a food she doesn't like and will not try again. But my point is that tastes change, ideas change, and they only change when you keep turning and you keep trying. So I was able to train myself to like peaches. So that was very exciting. I've still been working my way through tomatoes. Like I really one day just want to enjoy tomatoes because I think as an adult, my life is greatly challenged by the fact that I don't like tomatoes or tomato sauce that much. But, you know, this is a difficult thing. Tomatoes have a weird texture. Thank you. Thank you for your support, Liana. I appreciate it. What about you, Um, Amanda? What should we keep turning? I constantly think that realistically, this is going to sound very silly, but there are these mirrors that you can have. And I happen to have one on my dresser that one side shows you as like how you are and one shows you like very magnified. And when you look at the very magnified, it's easy to kind of see all your flaws and it's easy to see like the things that like need a lot of work or the things that are, you know, maybe you're not so happy with. And then when you flip that mirror back, like you kind of actually see yourself or who you really are again. And so I would love it if we were able to flip those lenses constantly to be able to see, sure, the things that we may need to work on or the things that we struggle with, but then to see ourselves as we are. And then sometimes for people to maybe hold up a picture and be like, I get that that's how you see yourself, but this is how we see you because maybe the images we're seeing don't always appear to us, you know, the way that they might appear out in the world. I know that's something I struggle with sometimes. And Bereshit also, like, think about it this way. In Bereshit, we have two creation stories. So it's definitely not, you know, absurd for us to think that we may have two different ways of looking at ourselves or appearing in the world. And so that's something that I might want to be able to like figure out in, I don't know, a conversation or an interaction. But there are a lot of conversations and interactions for people to have. So Liana, Alana, if people wanted to continue the conversation, how might they be best able to find or follow you? Liana, we'll start with you. Okay, I am on Instagram at so fair, so good. That's S-O-F-E-R underscore S-O underscore good. Or if you go to stomscribes.com, that's S-T-A-M-S-C-R-I-B-E-S.com, you can find the Progressive Scribes Guild that I'm a part of, and you can find me and my fantastic colleagues there. And I think if you poke around long enough on that website, you can also find the Women's to Fill in Gamach that I mentioned. And just to clarify one more time and reiterate, it's not just for women, it's for anyone who is not a cis man. Amazing. 
a lot of people want to hear maybe some of your incredible rabbinic musings, how can they find you? I am happy to be reached by email, which is alana.simons, I-L-A-N-A dot S-Y-M-O-N-S at H-U-C dot E-D-U. Amazing. Incredible. And Liana, I'm pretty sure you've been waiting for this the entire episode, but any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? Yes. Credit for this joke goes to my dear colleague, Michal Richardson. And for this joke, you need to know that dio is the Hebrew word for ink. Where does a male scribe store his dio? Where? In an ink well, actually. <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh my goodness. Anyway, <laughs> I like it. I have to give a huge shout out and thank you to you, Leanna, for joining us all the way from London this week. What a joy it is to be able to actually spend this as a monsoon continue this time of our happiness during Sukkot to record with you and be in class with you at a time where you couldn't actually be in the building. Thank you, Alana, so much for joining us, literally in the same classroom to make sure that this episode got out. And I know that today was a busy day and we're so excited that you got to be with us for the whole time. It's crazy, but we're thrilled you're here. Gabe, as always, thank you for just being you and your random jokes and funny one-liners that sometimes get in the episodes and sometimes get cut out. We'll see what happens today. Thank you to you, Don. Even though you couldn't be here, we appreciate that you always make sure that we get things on schedule and on time and you are the menchiest mensch. So we are so thrilled to be able to work with you. And thank you to whoever edits us this week. We're stoked to kick off season three with all of you. And thank you to our listeners for being so wonderful. We're going to be back at you with our conclusion soon. So stay tuned. You know, Gabe, it's really interesting for me because I've always loved art. You know, I was an art major in high school. I thought at some point I was going to go to art school for fashion design once upon a time when I was in high school. And I have to tell you a secret that I don't talk a lot about in the podcast world, but it's just us. So I feel like it's safe. You know, when I went to college, I thought that I was going to change the world by being a pediatrician. And I forgot that I wasn't particularly good at science or math. And one of the most challenging things for me has been taking my love of art and taking my struggle with math and combining them in this tradition of Sofruit because it seems that in this writing, we need both. We need kind of art and science. So what's really neat about that is that Sofruit in itself becomes kind of an interpretation of the text. Interpretation is also often an art and a science and mixing those together. Right, there are really specific rules about how we need to write each individual letter, about which letters have little flourishes and what those little flourishes are. Some letters can be expanded and some can't be. And there are really specific dimensions that all of the letters are supposed to be. So yeah, there are a lot of rules and yet it really is an art. You're creating something that's so beautiful. I really struggle to find another word to describe it other than a work of art. It's really fascinating. So there is something that you don't know about. Okay. So the first time that I ever did Hagba, which is the lifting of the Torah, was actually here at HUC in the chapel downstairs. I didn't know that. And I never realized that women could do Hagba because when I was going to temple, even as a Reformed Jew, they always picked these big, strong men to lift up the Torah. And so it was really incredible that at HUC, not only was that the first time that I was able to do Hagba, it's also the first time that I've actually been able to help in creating the Torah. And so it's a new way of being able 
to hold this Torah because I'm able to both internalize what the words mean, but also at this point, externalize what they say and how people might see them. It's really beautiful. I don't think I have thought about it in that way. This idea that writing the Torah, it's a way to externalize Torah, but it's also a way to internalize it, right? They say that you should always take notes by hand and not on a computer because that's how you remember things better, right? That you don't actually, your brain doesn't process the keystrokes, but it does process when you're writing. So I think that's really interesting that writing out the Torah could be seen as kind of almost like taking notes as a way to internalize the text. One of the things I remember from our first day of class was I said, you know, I'm really excited about this. I've like done calligraphy, not with all of the rules, but on my iPad, just as a like almost doodling sort of thing. But, you know, my handwriting is awful. I was so nervous about it because my handwriting is atrocious. Nobody can read what I'm writing when, you know, I just write with a pen. But one of the things Liana said to us on the first day of class was, listen, this isn't about handwriting. This is about each individual pen stroke and how all of those individual pen strokes come together to form letters. And that's really not the same thing. So on the one hand, I'm seeing this like, oh, it's writing, it's internalizing, it's like taking notes. And on the other hand, I'm thinking, well, it's not really like writing. There's something different about it. There's something special about it. There's something almost more mindful about it. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I had never heard this Stom, this Safer Torah to fill in mezuzah statement before, but Stom also in Hebrew means like, just right like kind of like a nike just do it and sometimes if people are making a joke in israel they might say stom like just kidding but here there is something really beautiful about the stom of the craft to just do it to get into it to be able to take your heart and your head and bring both to your hand you know the ability to really write something and have it stick i love that i love this idea that tab stom that font, that calligraphy that we think about, Katab Stam, is also the simple Katab. It's the, as you said, the Stam, the, it's just the writing. Because you would think about it as, oh, this is calligraphy, it's beautiful, there are flourishes, and yet Stam, it's just what it is. So I love that kind of drosh on this idea of the, of the acronym Stam. One of the last things I'm thinking about is something else that Liana said to us, which is this dictum from Talmud that says the words of Torah don't take on impurity, that, you know, it's never wrong for us, regardless of our state of ritual purity, to, to interact with Torah, because Torah doesn't take on impurity, because Torah is, by its nature, pure. It is, by its nature, holy, and it can't take on those impurities. And it's really wonderful for me that Liana kind of brings to light this idea that every person, regardless of their gender, regardless of their identities, regardless of their state of ritual purity, gets to interact with Torah and really can interact with Torah in the most basic ways or really in the most intimate of writing a Sefer Torah. So you're saying in this particular episode for this particular season, we had a teacher that came in and said, Actually, y'all, your goal of helping people take ownership of their own terms in their own time, that's great, but they also can take it in their own hands. Ooh, love that. Well, I know what I want to do with our hands right now, which is to, you know, as always, raise a glass to our listeners. We are so excited to start off this new season with you. 
We hope that you keep on listening and we are so excited to keep bringing new guests your way each week, week after week, because turn it, turn it, turn it again. Everything's in it. Tora with a twist. We're coming at you with this drinking and drashing for the twist podcast season three. I'm Liana Jelen-Tapnak, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist, and you are not a bad Jew. <laughs>